Ezra chapter 3. If you're using the Black Pew Bible in front of you, that's page 390. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Ezra chapter 3. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to Yahweh, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of Yahweh, and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to Yahweh. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to Yahweh. But the foundation of the temple of Yahweh was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Josadak made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of Yahweh. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of Yahweh, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise Yahweh according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to Yahweh, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised Yahweh, because the foundation of the house of Yahweh was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. You can be seated as I pray for us. Holy Spirit, teach your people through your word today. And I ask that I would not distract from that good work in any way. In Christ's name, amen. When I was at university, I fell in with the campus chapter of Power to Change, which is a, a Christian outreach and discipleship movement. And in many ways, it was the most exciting time of my life. I was already a Christian at that point, but 
God used these new friends and mentors in a powerful way to change me. I already knew the Bible well, but somehow it changed for me. It became a world that I could live inside of. It became more profound and reliable and personally relevant than anything that I could see or touch or hear with my own senses. The Holy Spirit was feeding all of us richly from his word. And he also stirred us up to prayer. Prayer meetings would last long into the night and impromptu prayer was happening everywhere. These ingredients then combined to create a consciousness of God's holiness and our corruption. But this holy God was with us and so we weren't afraid of anything. We confessed our sins to one another, our hidden sins, and we walked together in the light. And then came boldness and joy in evangelism. Seemingly, wherever you went around this campus of 36,000 students, we could see people whom we recognized having intentional conversations with unbelievers. We'd go to strangers on the lawn. We'd sit down with others in dorm lobbies or cafeterias or sports centers. And so the result was that hardened atheists, Buddhists, Muslims, Jews were all coming to the Lord. Several fraternities and sororities were transformed as their members traded one-night stands and hangovers for morning Bible studies and the joyful pursuit of purity. And our community was so full of genuine love, not superficial. Cool people and nerdy people, brilliant people and academically struggling, rich and poor, beautiful people and the rest of us. None of those distinctions had any meaning anymore. Everyone was growing together in love and wisdom and every form of grace. But then something shocking happened. We graduated. And as we landed in various non-campus churches across the country, things just weren't the same. Was it that these people called adults just didn't care? No, it wasn't quite that, but they generally gave us one area in which we could contribute and then told us in not so many words to calm down and grow up. And for many of my university friends, a, a, a disillusionment set in, you know, they, were, they didn't know how to take it. And for some of them, that disillusionment even persists to this day. Now maybe you can think of a time or a place like that, like university was for me, a time or place when God was so real to you and joy was so accessible and love just poured into you and out of you more readily than you've been able to experience since. Think of a time when God's word was tangibly changing your life every day and prayer was easy and joyful. Maybe it was a college experience, a youth camp, a time at a different church, or maybe a different time at this church. Whatever and wherever it was, in your mind, those are probably the glory days. And if only we think, if only we could recreate that here, right? If we could bring those similar experiences and have them now at MABC or in my growth group or my prayer group or in my family, then we'd really have what we needed. Then we'd really be on the right track of which God approves. Well, our passage this morning teaches good news that we don't have to wait for the what-if times to come around again. We can move forward in faithfulness right now, even in what may seem to you 
like the gray days of the church. By gray days, I mean days when your walk of faith and your experience of Christian community aren't playing out with the same growth or freedom or joy or glory that you've had glimpses of in the past. And the good news is that you can rely on God and you can progress in feats of eternal significance, even if they seem mundane or lacking glory or incomplete in regard to where we know God wants to take us in the future. So the structure of our passage today is really just two big chunks. Both give a a beautiful picture of worshipful work for God, but then comes a realization that it's still incomplete. So the first section is verses 1 through 7, and the second section is verses 8 through 13. In 1 through 7, we'll consider faithfulness in the midst of fear. And in 8 through 13, we'll meditate on progress in the midst of mixed emotions. So let's start in on the first section, which will show us that we can be faithful and fearful at the same time. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to Yahweh, burnt offerings morning and evening. So just to review, it's 537 B.C., and the Jewish people, by permission of King Cyrus of Persia, have returned to Palestine to reestablish their ancient homeland. And as you can imagine, there was plenty of work to do for for all these families, right? They're building homes, they're tending fields, they're setting up fences, breeding livestock. But in the midst of all of those concerns, something unique happens. The people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Just to note that that same language happens also in Nehemiah 8 and also in Acts chapter 2. And in each time that it, it talks of people gathering like that, Such unified gathering precedes a powerful work of the Holy Spirit through his word. Well, Why would they gather like this, particularly in the seventh month, which for them was September, October, this time of year right now? If you have any Jewish friends, you probably know that this is the time of high holy days. It's the most important month of the Jewish religious year with two festivals. And so these settlers in Ezra's time They have this instinct, even after these long years of exile, they knew to gather together according to the pattern established by the law of Moses. And there was an excitement in the air, but before they could celebrate either of those two sacred holidays, they needed to do something. Just as you wouldn't have Christmas without a Christmas tree, so you wouldn't think of having the Feast of Booths without an altar. And for them, nothing said happy holidays like warm animal blood flowing down those stones. But in all seriousness, we're going to have to talk some about sacrifice if this text is going to come alive for you. Why should we care about these religious structures and and rituals of a small nation that lived 2,500 years ago? Well, this has everything to do with Jesus Christ. See, they killed bulls and goats and sheep as sacrifices for sin and guilt and to re-enter peace with God and also sometimes just to give him thanks. 
And these animal offerings were costly, and they involved the forfeiture of a pure life. But the New Testament tells us that such sacrifices were really just shadowy placeholders. They were never able to purify our consciences. Rather, they pointed to Jesus, the one who entered once for all into the heavenly holy place and offered himself as a sacrifice to atone for our sin. So sacrifice is to be the center of our lives as well, but our dealing with sacrifice is to continually fix our hope on the finished work of Christ on our behalf. And then that leads us to, in thanksgiving, to freely offer our own bodies as living sacrifices for the service of our God. So we don't need to worship at a physical altar. We can worship wherever we find ourselves. And this is really where our thoughts should go whenever we read about uh, the Old Covenant altar and the sacrifices that it held. Well, besides just providing the necessities for their holiday celebration, this altar, uh, it also served a couple of other purposes. It established their claim on the land, and it was a bold declaration of, of their faith in God's promises. So in Genesis 12, Abram marked his arrival in the land by setting up an altar. And then later, when Jacob came safely back into the land after his fearful encounter with Esau, he also erected an altar. So it's natural for these people here to rebuild the altar first, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. And the rebuilding of the altar was also just the next practical step of obedience. Note how verses 2 and 4, they stress obedience to what was written. They built the altar to offer burnt offerings as it is written in the law of Moses. They offered those according to the rule. They celebrated the appointed feasts. And even the exact place where the altar would have been placed was specified by what was recorded in Scripture previously. So we see that their efforts at worship here, they're totally controlled by the Word of God. And that emphasizes one of the key themes of the book of Ezra, that God's people must hold fast to God's written Word. So when there's chaos or there's discouragement or there's uncertainty, uncertainty in the church, our mandate is not to run after the vision of a dynamic leader or to gauge member preferences as if this was a mere social club and we're not to look at what worked for other quote-unquote successful churches. No, this culture of reliance upon scripture, it was cultivated by the prophets and Ezra the scribe, but it was also given by Jesus to his church. So to the word and the testimony, we learn that in days without glory, we can still live faithfully if we look to the book. The Bible should control how we worship and how we build our community. And if we'll simply keep working with the building blocks given us by Scripture, we'll find that real progress has been made toward the restoration of all things, beginning with God's people. But I want to return to that statement in verse 3, that they gathered to build the altar for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. And this begs the question, what do we make of their fear? Shouldn't they have been strong and courageous like the first Israelites to come into the land? Shouldn't they imitate Daniel and his friends who in the not-so-distant past, in the exile, they just walked into the flames and walked into lion's dens out of loyalty for Yahweh? Shouldn't they and shouldn't we fear God only and no man? Yeah, that's true. 
But the beauty of this passage and the beauty of many narratives in Scripture is that God doesn't demand that we be all put together before we begin obedience. He understands that we're weak and frail. He knows that there will be sinful fear. And rather than criticizing these frightened settlers, Ezra showcases the hope-filled trajectory that they're choosing. They are afraid, and so they press into God's promises. They do the scary thing that would likely further anger their neighbors in the region. Maybe their hands are even shaking as they set the stones of the altar in place. But God honors their obedience, and the community goes on to even greater things. It's no different for us, really. We need to take steps in sharing the good news even before our fear of evangelism goes away. Yes, your coworkers may paint a target on your back, but they need to know that you identify with Christ. Or maybe we should gather for prayer with other Christians, even if we're afraid of it. Couldn't that be the very way that God wants to remove that fear from us? Or how about we overcome our fear of poverty and addiction and age and sickness by actually befriending and serving those in need, even if it feels messy and anxiety-producing at first? Just as for anything we face in life, fear can either paralyze us or it can be a tool that God uses to propel us into growth. So even amid fear and uncertainty, in in these are our stubborn steps of obedience. The sacrifice of Christ is then presented on the altar of our lives, and it comes to mark the area all around us to declare that God's kingdom is in that place. So picking up with more about their faithfulness in verse 4, it reads, And they kept the feast of booths as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the burnt offerings, the offerings at the the new moon and the appointed feasts of Yahweh, the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to Yahweh. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to Yahweh. First, let me just say, this is a lot of sacrifice. Like, when, when Bible class was going through numbers this past spring, we learned that in this festival alone, there are 199 sacrifices, not including the uninterrupted daily sacrifices, plus the Sabbath and new moon sacrifices, plus free will offerings. It's a lot of work. And this faithfulness by the returned exiles, it shows us that whatever efforts they're undertaking here, they want to build the altar, they want to build God's house, eventually they want to build God's city, but undergirding any of those efforts is this daily habit of worship. Are we taking advantage of that everyday means of grace? Because if we're not celebrating God in those ways, if we're not celebrating Christ's final sacrifice in our hearts and our homes day by day, then why would we expect to be part of something exciting that he's about to accomplish in building his eternal church? And would our spiritual taste buds even be able to discern a revival or awakening if it was happening right around us? Opening our hearts to God in the everyday mundane patterns of our lives, that's the best way to prepare for his great moments of work in our midst. The Feast of Booths would have been incredibly meaningful for them to celebrate at this point because it's a holiday that celebrated the exodus by setting up and and sleeping in booths, so temporary structures like tents. And they did this to remember how God had led and protected their ancestors on the wilderness journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. 
Well, now in Ezra's day, it's at least 25 generations later, these returned exiles find themselves again not yet established in the land and very much in need of God's guidance and protection. So they looked back to the Exodus. They looked back um, to see God's deliverance. But the Feast of Booths also had a forward-looking aspect. It anticipated the future messianic age when all nations would flow to the city to worship the Lord. And so as they set to rebuild this temple and as the center of that worship, you can imagine how meaningful it would have been for them to uh, remember the, the glory of God's saving acts in the past, yes, but even more to long for the glory of God's reign in the future. And the same is true for us today. We're, we're in the middle, though in a different way. Because the Messiah has come, Jesus, the greater Moses, who delivered us from slavery to sin and death. We've passed through the waters with him, but we still find ourselves in wilderness wanderings, not yet at home in Messiah's realm. So we too dwell in booths, which interestingly, Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 5, he calls our mortal bodies. So we look backward for courage and perspective to the exodus Jesus already accomplished for his people. But we look forward, longing for the glory of the day when his temple, city, church building project will be complete and a diverse and great multitude of redeemed worshipers will be gathered together at last. So for we who belong to Christ, our, our kingdom work is always, in a sense, taking place within the Feast of Booths. So... All of these simple steps of obedience, um, the building of the altar, the reinstitution of sacrifices, this, these are very good, very good things, beautiful works of worship. But the true restoration of God's people is still incomplete, as we see in the next verses. It says, But the foundation of the temple of Yahweh was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. As much as the building of the altar was to be celebrated, we're left to focus on the lack, namely that there's no temple yet to surround this altar. The presence of sacrifice was important, that was foundational, but the end goal here is much bigger. It's a place where God can dwell in the midst of his people. This is what temple is all about for them and for us. So now, just as we did for sacrifice, I want, I want to help you realize that the only reason I can apply this temple talk to you today is because the concept of temple was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God's people no longer need to go up to Jerusalem to experience the presence of God because God the Son took on flesh and tabernacled among us. Being found in him by faith and indwelt by his spirit, we also, as his body, are being built into a temple, living stones forming the truer house of God. And this is why temple building is our project, too. So they get to work supplying, um, getting supplies from Tyre and Sidon and, and Lebanon and Joppa. If you read in Chronicles about the process for building the first temple, you'll see that it was exactly the same. They're borrowing from the past of God's people. And down in verse 8, we also see that the second month is also when Solomon's temple had begun construction over 400 years earlier. So they're borrowing from the past as their pattern for what they should do to move forward now. 
And that should be freeing for us as well as we work toward the time when God's dwelling will be fully manifest among us. We don't have to reinvent the wheel here, right? We don't have to be that clever having a killer marketing scheme or intricate programs. Just the same old supplies from the same old sources will grow and mature the church. Sitting under the teaching of God's word, giving ourselves to prayer, celebrating baptism and communion, speaking praise about our God in public, gathering in one another's homes. The old methods prescribed in scripture are reliable. We don't need to go beyond them. Let's imitate the faithful ones who have gone before us. So verses 1 through 7 have shown us that during the days of the church that seem to lack glory, we're not to be paralyzed by fear, but instead move forward in faithfulness according to what's been written in Scripture, according to the good examples laid down for us by those who have gone before. We can be fearful and faithful as we wait and work for the glory that's to come. Our second section starts in verse 8. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Josadak made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests, the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of Yahweh. And Jeshua with his sons and brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. So verse 8 shows us a second wave of work, and they're aiming to make a beginning on the temple. And here, too, we see a beautiful work of worship. Maybe the first thing to notice about it is its very collective nature. Sure, Zerubbabel and Jeshua are out in front, but this is a group effort with some whole clans and, and priests and the Levites including some guys who just aren't important elsewhere, like Cadmiel and Henadad. And we see that the book of Ezra is in line with this trajectory uh, for the people of God. It's becoming less and less towards the end of the Old Testament about the appointed judge or the, the anointed king or the prophet who's accomplishing the work all on his own. No, here after the exile, we see the people of God, they're starting to take ownership together as it's meant to be also for us as the church. And this is because the fulfillment was approaching through Jesus, the true anointed one. His spirit no longer comes upon old covenant superheroes, but rather fills all of us, that the body of Christ being joined together might grow into a holy temple in the Lord. And I think that this deference to the leader to come is foreshadowed here in Ezra, specifically through the persons of Zerubbabel and Jeshua. So Zerubbabel is a descendant of David, he appears in um, Matthew and Luke's genealogies for Jesus. He's his ancestor. And Jeshua, he's the high priest, and, well, he has the same name as Jesus. Yeshua is Hebrew. Jesus is the Greek version of that name. And in English, we say either Joshua or Jesus. So keep in mind that these guys in front of the project, both, both those two and, and everyone gathered in, in Ezra's day, but also we... Today, we are nothing special in and of ourselves. The leader's job is just to equip the saints collectively for the work of ministry and to point the people to Jesus, the only leader who matters. So in the gray days of the church, when glory feels far from the daily grind 
of serving God together. Don't look for the glory to be provided by elite leadership. The fulfillment that God has for us will come through the faithfulness of Christ's spirit-filled community. Verse 10, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of Yahweh, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise Yahweh according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to Yahweh. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised Yahweh because the foundation of the house of Yahweh was laid. So they complete the foundation and then this musical worship party breaks out. And they're using the same exact psalm that was sung at the dedication of Solomon's glorious temple on that spot centuries earlier. History was repeating itself and it was testimony to God's faithfulness to his people. He had brought them back to the land. He had kept them safe. He had enabled the reestablishment of sacrifices. He had enabled them to begin building a place for the people to enjoy the presence of their God. He had great plans for his people. And these plans were unfolding before their eyes. Similarly, it is good and right and necessary for us to celebrate God's faithfulness. Just like these people did at the Feast of Booths and at the laying of the foundation. Because you see, he has been good and loving to us. He has preserved this church through the decades. He has caused it to cling to the inspired word. He's made it a place where we serve each other sacrificially, a place where outsiders are welcomed and transformed by his spirit. He's been faithful to keep showing us our sin, to keep applying his grace, to remind us of his promises to create true growth. His church is being built, and this must be celebrated. Yet verse 12 brings another step back from the cheerful enthusiasm. It reports, But many of the priests and the Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Again, we see an act of beautiful worship qualified by a realization of what's lacking. Some of you, as we read this story, you may be frustrated with these elderly voices, ready to dismiss them as just a a bunch of difficult old killjoys. But I want to speak up for them, not least of all because I hope to be like them someday. It's a joke. (laughs) Kind of. I think God gives us difficult old men in part to keep us honest and to keep our heads out of the clouds. But even more to the point, these guys are making a true observation. The last time a temple was dedicated on this spot, the people sang this very psalm, things were quite different. For one thing, it was a completed temple, not just a foundation. For another, it was much larger and more glorious than anything the blueprint of this second structure could ever produce. There were thousands more people there in Solomon's time. And it was a time of ridiculous wealth and safety, whereas these settlers were just doing their best to to do what they could with the supplies that their occupiers had provided. And finally, at Solomon's temple dedication, there was clear evidence 
of God's favor and God's presence. Fire actually came down from heaven and consumed the offerings on the altar. And the cloud of God's glory filled that temple. So can you really blame these priests and these tribal leaders for their disappointment, for perhaps thinking that the celebration is just a bit premature? Sure, there's continuity in the building techniques. There's continuity in the timing of the construction. But there's still massive discontinuity between these two temples and their respective glory. It doesn't seem that in reporting this group of weepers, Ezra is in any way condemning their disappointment. In fact, by placing these two reactions of rejoicing and weeping one after another, we see that complex emotions are probably appropriate for an incomplete temple building process. We need both rejoicing and weeping. There is continuity of hopeful worship, and yet there is a reminder that final pieces of God's restoration still lie in the future. So if we only rejoice, that shows that we're far too easily pleased, and we're missing the bigger picture of what God wants to do. But if we only weep, then we miss out on the fact that God has ordained these days of small but real progress as stepping stones to the greater renewal to come. Almost as if God knew we wouldn't quite know what to do with this dual reaction, he gave Ezra's contemporary, the prophet Haggai, this word in chapter 2 of his book. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. My spirit remains in your midst, fear not. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says Yahweh of hosts, and in this place I will give peace. God also raised up the prophet Zechariah at the same time, who in chapter 4 of his book also addresses Zerubbabel, promising him that those who have despised the day of small things will rejoice as the temple project comes to completion. And we know that the same is true for us. Jesus laid the foundation of the new temple through his death and resurrection, and he is building his church by the same spirit, the same spirit who empowered Solomon and Zerubbabel, and Jeshua, and the others. And what happens here in the ruins of Jerusalem, with an altar stuck in the middle of nowhere, a seemingly unimpressive blueprint, this is all actually in continuity with the big promises of Scripture. A redeemed people growing in humility, purity, and love, going as heralds of good news to a world in need, serving as evidence that God is preparing to dwell with man when heaven comes down and remakes earth, and this combined realm is an endless holy of holies. So we see that this apparently low-key restoration of a regional temple, it's actually a really important link in the big story that continues. It continues to our day, even when we have the same fear and the same feelings that glory is lacking. So we've seen the structure of these two sections, that they gathered and made a beginning, but the rest of the temple was still lacking. They rose and laid the foundation, but still the glory was lacking. 
And I want you to see that as we co-labor in the building of God's living temple, this is very much our story in this age. Because until Christ returns, a blend of joyful expectation and sober realism must be characteristic of our building for God. We will use the means we have, we'll be bold as God gives us courage, we'll receive the help he provides, but we remain conscious that ultimately it's God's work. And we know that the sometimes unimpressive beginnings are not wasted. They will be transformed into something glorious in the end. So this second section shows us that when you assess the church, when you assess your personal growth, when you assess the progress of the gospel in Georgetown or around the world, you can be both excited and disappointed at the same time. In fact, I'll go, I'll go further and I'll suggest that you need to be both excited and disappointed at the same time. It's our calling to be that way, to have those complex emotions in this time between the two comings of Christ. So some of you need to get more excited. Do you see people coming to Christ among us, right? There are some. You see people getting baptized. You see people learning to navigate scripture for themselves, living transparently. I even see people taking small risks to spread the knowledge of Christ to others and You need to see these things too, and you need to rejoice with us. These beginnings are from the Lord. But you're also right when you say that we should see even more of this. You're not wrong to notice a definite lack of glory in some aspect of your walk with God or of our church's life together. Maybe it makes you want to weep. That's okay. You can weep, but then also stay involved. Is the children's ministry, the youth is missions or, or the preaching or whatever particularly lacking glory in your eyes? Which area of church life is the source of gray days for you? Well, that's likely the area where you need to get to work, where you need to get involved either serving or praying for those who do serve. So do that faithfully and learn to be content when God prefers to work in unimpressive and non-sensational ways. Some of you, on the other hand, are among the joyful shouters, not the weepers. And your celebration is right. But you might need to be more honest about what's lacking here. Maybe you're in a season right now where God is amazing you and radically transforming you every day. Or maybe, compared to churches in your past, your experience at this church has been so fruitful in your own life that you simply hope it goes on and on like this. If that's where you're at, let me first say, I am so happy to hear that. May God continue to use this place and these relationships to increase your joy and to conform you to the image of Christ. But as we gaze into the vision of Scripture for the church, we will note that there's still a long way to go. All of us have a significant gap between what we know about God and our actual love for Him and for other people. And together, We're just babies as far as living lives of prayer and sharing life together to build each other up in the Lord. We must go farther in not coddling our sin. And we've barely started to hold forth God's word to others or even to know and care about all segments of our community. So hopefully that's sobering to realize the lack, the incompleteness. But you know, it's also a little bit thrilling to know that there's so much more for us to experience. 
But I want to emphasize that we can't just set up camp at our current understanding of maturity. Be thankful for those who are weeping and fold their perspective into your own. Also, if you're not a Christian today, I want you to know that this message is for you too because maybe you see hypocrisy in the church or you, you see discontinuity between what we say and our actual situation. Maybe you say like, well, these Christians, they talk about this big, glorious, sovereign, good, beautiful God, but I look at these people and they're just simple people and they're just doing simple things. So really, where's the glory? I want to encourage you today not to be deceived and don't despise the day of small things because our Lord is a glorious one. But the brilliance of his message is often hidden in us as if we were jars of clay. And he wants there to be no mistake that the glory in this project is from him. It's, it's not anything inherent in us. So we Christians, we still fail a lot. We can be confused. We can get diseases and experience brokenness just like everyone else. But you see, this is all as Jesus said it would be. We are not yet what we will be. But hopefully you also see from our lives that we are not what we once were. His spirit is transforming us and building his church. So Ezra 3 is a great chapter for those who feel small, who feel fearful, who feel disappointed. And I hope that you're given courage and hope by this passage. Because maybe, like me, you're tempted to compare today's worship and ministry to some season of a glorious past. Or maybe you're just rightly aware of how Scripture promises a glory that's, that's much greater, a community more glorious than anything we're seeing today. And these are good things to be mindful of. Good things to lament their absence in prayer. But we also need to celebrate the small victories and keep moving forward in obedience. And taken together, I think that the mixed reaction to temple progress in Ezra, it models for us this sober optimism, this divinely disquieted contentedness. So let's keep taking those bold steps of obedience without despair, but also without being naive or self-congratulatory. This is a supernatural work, and if we get puffed up, we will be made to fall on our faces. So let's celebrate the good, but let's also mourn what's incomplete, and let's keep working toward it with joyful zeal, knowing that his spirit is with us, and he has promised glory. Let's pray. Almighty God, the one whose glory fills the temple and who moves kings in history to establish your people, we thank you that you dwell with us. That reality is already true through your Holy Spirit who dwells in us. But that reality is not yet true in all the ways you've promised. But we thank you for the good work you've given us to do, even in these mundane seasons. Lord, make, make us a people who work in a faithful, hopeful, thoughtful, and joyful manner. Amen.